As I said, we're going to go into the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to cover kind of an introduction for 1 Corinthians this morning, and we'll also look at the first, uh, the first nine verses. Um, the Apostle Paul, he wrote 13 letters that are contained in the New Testament. And one of them being the book of 1 Corinthians. And I believe, it's my opinion, that this was probably one of the most difficult letters for Paul to write. It was, it was difficult for a number of reasons, but primarily the book of 1 Corinthians is going to be a letter of correction. It's going to be a letter of rebuke. And if you've ever had to correct somebody, if you've ever had to rebuke them because of their lifestyle not matching their faith, you can understand how difficult that is. But perhaps what's even harder than correcting somebody is being corrected. Because none of us like to be corrected, but that's what Paul's up against. Paul loved this church in Corinth so much, he saw them slipping away. Word had gotten back to him that they're, they're slipping away from the Lord, and they're slipping away from their convictions that they once had, and they're kind of slipping back into their old lifestyle. And so he's going to correct them to try to bring them back into line. He was like a loving father who sought to correct his children who had kind of wandered off the path a little bit. So that's Paul's heart as he's writing this. And as we read the letter, if you've read it before, as we get into it, it's going to become very obvious that the church in Corinth, well, they were facing a lot of problems. There was a lot of issues going on in the church in Corinth there. Some of the members of the church, people that were attending the church regularly, they were involved in sexual immorality. Others were fighting and bickering and suing one another in court. Still others were just plain out getting drunk at the communion service. It had become a party for them. They weren't, they weren't valuing communion, the relationship of communing with the Lord. It became a, a festival or a party. They were abusing the gifts of the Spirit, and their services, they were completely out of control. They, they had gone wild. They were out of order. And Paul's going to seek to bring them back to the biblical basis. And we will find as we study through 1 Corinthians what an amazing book it is as Paul brings them back as he lovingly rebukes them. A little bit of background on the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth was an important city. It was a thriving city of commercialism. It was a growing city. It was a very prosperous city, and it was strategically located for shipping. Uh, it, was, it was a city that was, you would often pass through in the shipping lanes. If you were to look at a map, and Kevin's going to put one up there for you, if you were to look at a map, you would find that Greece, is, which is where Corinth is, is divided into two parts the northern part, and the southern part. Corinth is on the four-mile-wide isthmus that attaches the northern and the southern part of Greece. In ancient, uh, uh, on, the, on the western side of, of Corinth was the Gulf of Corinth. On the eastern side was the Saronic Gulf. And then there on the southern side of Greece, if you see the trade route there, on the extreme southern tip of Greece was the Cape of Malia. The Cape of Malia. In ancient times, or in biblical times, this was... It was very time-consuming for a ship to sail all the way down around the Cape of Malia. But it not only was time-consuming because it was about a 250-mile journey, it was also extremely dangerous. And it, it became a, a place that many ships, many sailors lost their lives doing that. And they actually had a saying they would say to people that were heading down that way. They would say, let him who sails around Malia forget his home. Let him who sails around Malia make out his will because there was a good chance you weren't going to make it back. Well, the sailors and the merchants decide there's got to be a better way, right? We can't keep losing ships around that southern cape, so we're going to have to do something different. So rather than sail those 250 miles around this treacherous cape, it would be better if we just 
took our boats out of the water, put them on skids, rolled them across the four-mile-wide isthmus, and put them in on the other side. And that's exactly what they did. When they arrived at the eastern side there, they would be in the city of Corinth. They called this isthmus the, the Dialcos, and it literally means the place of dragging across. So you can imagine, consequently, as the city of Corinth had people coming from all areas, from the north, from the south, from the east, and from the west. Because of its, because of its position there, Corinth was a merchant's paradise. You could buy and get anything that you wanted in Corinth. It was a happening place. It was, it was certainly a place where there was a lot going on. The Corinthian people were also known for being intellectually astute. They, they liked philosophy. They wanted to be presented as smart. They loved philosophical ideas, and they also enjoyed demonstrations of oratorical skill or a golden tongue or gifted speech, if you will. And if you were gifted with a golden tongue and you could speak eloquently, they would often describe you as, or they would say that you spoke, you spoke in a Corinthian style. You spoke like a Corinthian. Uh, Corinth was also well known for its entertainment. There was a lot happening there, a lot, a lot to go see in, in Corinth. In Paul's day, there were two great athletic competitions that were taking place. The Olympic Games, which we still have today, was one of them. They were originally held in Olympia and then moved to Athens. By the way, Corinth was five times larger than the city of Athens and would be the capital of Achaia at this time. The second athletic competition was the Ithmian Games of Corinth. That brought spectators and competitors from all around. You can see it's a gathering, it's a happening place. With all of this stuff happening, with all this vibrant city taking place, Corinth was also a city of great immorality. It was also kind of like Las Vegas, if you will. A lot of what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. You know, it was one of those places that was just immorality was also everywhere. The city was so immoral that there became a catchphrase known. If you were a person who was living a drunken or a licentious lifestyle, or you were a person who was living a lifestyle that, that was immoral, they would often describe you as acting like a Corinthian. You were living like a Corinthian. So it actually became a tag or a title of somebody who was living an immoral lifestyle. But with all the prosperity and the immorality, many of these practices brought, were also brought into their false religious worship. They had the, there in, there in Corinth, they had the temple of Aphrodite. It had a thousand temple prostitutes in the evenings would come down off of the high place and they would go into the community and, and, and sell their services to support the temple. So sexual immorality was very high and all over the place in Corinth as well. And some, of, some people have even said that Corinth is a lot like our culture here today in the United States, that there's very sexually charged, a lot of prosperity, a lot of things going on. In the midst of this prosperous but sinful city, the gospel of Jesus Christ came. The Lord sent a man to share the good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it was sent by none other than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul would be the one penning this letter back to the city in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul tells us himself in his letter, when he arrived in Corinth, he came in weakness, fear, and much trembling. You can imagine taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to a new place, not knowing what was going to happen, looking out at the culture and thinking, man, this is going to be a hard place to share Christ with. These people aren't going to want to hear Christ, but instead it was just the opposite. The Corinthians began getting saved. They wanted to hear the word of God. They turned away from many, many of them turned away from their lifestyles, and Paul changed the face of Corinth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shortly after arriving in Corinth, Paul met a couple 
They met a Jewish couple named Priscilla and Aquila. Perhaps you've read about them or heard about them in the scriptures. They were tent makers like Paul was also. And there in Corinth, they set up a shop. They began to make tents and share the gospel. When Paul wasn't making tents, he'd go into the synagogue. Whenever he could, he'd be in the synagogue and he'd present Jesus Christ as the Messiah to the Jews there in Corinth. At some point, Timothy and Silas would join the apostle Paul in Corinth as people were getting saved left and right. But as they preached the gospel there in Corinth, as they were having great success, you can imagine there were those who were opposing them. There were those that were coming against the gospel. They didn't like what the gospel was bringing. In the book of Acts chapter 18, it tells us that Paul preached in the synagogue and the Jewish people rejected him there in Corinth. They didn't want anything to do with them. They threw him out of the synagogue and what Paul's response was, it tells us he literally shook, off the, shook the dirt off of his clothes and he said this to them. He said, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Not easily being uh, persuaded, Paul didn't quit and go back home. Instead, you know what he did? Went right next door. He moved, he moved right next door. Since they wouldn't have him in the synagogue, he went next door to a house by the name of, that was owned by a man by the name of Justice. He continued preaching Christ crucified. He preached, preached the gospel. And you know what happened? Eventually, one of the leaders of the synagogue they had thrown him, thrown him out of, his name was Crispus, came to belief in Jesus Christ. Came to be a believer in Jesus Christ. He got saved. Paul's preaching was very effective, and he tells us that he didn't do it eloquently. He simply shared the good news and taught the scriptures to the people like an ordinary person would. So Paul stayed in Corinth for about 18 months. Had a great ministry there, and while in Corinth... Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, which is the book that we just finished last week. He wrote his letter there, and uh, as Paul was there immersed in Roman culture, he was writing to the Romans, as he was immersed in Corinthian culture, he would be writing to the Romans, and some people actually believe that as Paul was penning that very famous part of Romans on sin in Romans chapter 1, verses 18-31, he was looking out his house, or looking out the window there in Corinth at the culture around him. Seeing that's exactly what he was seeing and he was describing it to the Romans as he was right as he was looking at it firsthand. After being there for about 18 months, the Apostle Paul had led many to Christ. But it was time for him to leave Corinth and he went on up to Ephesus and he left a man by the name of Apollos in charge. Apollos was overseeing the church. He was the pastor of the house churches there in Corinth. And after some time, the church became plagued with problems. There became some issues that pop up. Church members began to send letters to Paul in regards to the condition of the church. They were concerned, and in a very short time, the church in Corinth had become divided. It had become extremely divided. Paul's always warning about division and always exhorting us for unity, but the church in Corinth found itself divided. They began to identify with certain pastors and certain people. Some would identify with Paul. Paul's our leader. He's our man. Others would identify with Paulos. No, he's our man. We like Apollos better. Some would identify with Peter. And, of course, the really spiritual ones, they would say, we just identify with Jesus. Well, that, that, that's the only one we're following. But the church became divided. And along with being divided, the church also became involved in the worldly practices of sin. You see, the things that they had once been saved from were now creeping back into their lives. And rather than leave the church, they were bringing them with them into the church. So what you had was a group of believers who were living like they were unbelievers, but proclaiming Christ. That was the church in the city of Corinth. The leadership of the church began to tolerate this. They began to look at this vile and sinful practices, and they began to cover it up. They began to respond in a way by saying, well, it's okay. We just want to love the people. 
Just let, let them live however they want to live. We're just going to love them. We're, just going to, we're not going to judge them. We're, going to, we're just going to love them. We don't want to judge anybody. Simply put, the church in Corinth had become a mess in a very short time. There was a lot going on there. Some people would say that it's similar to many of our seeker-friendly churches today in our country and around the world, where there's just trying to love people, where their focus is on filling seats and not necessarily teaching the Bible, where they want to entertain the crowds with smoke machines and fancy lights and all kinds of things, and it, it becomes about everything but Jesus Christ. Not that it's wrong in any way to have those kinds of things, but when they become the focus, you take the focus off of Jesus Christ, the church is beginning a, a downward spiral that's, that's just starting and going in the wrong direction. You see, the, church, the focus of the church should always be Jesus Christ. There should always be a call to purity. There should always be a call to holiness or a drive for those things. Nobody's perfect, but we shouldn't look out and go, oh, that's all right, don't worry about it. We shouldn't be afraid to call sin, sin. We shouldn't be afraid to say, no, the Bible says that's wrong. If you choose to do that, you're living in sin. That You can be forgiven and you can change, but you don't have to live that way. The church in Corinth had slipped back and they'd become wanted to be more popular. They'd wanted, they didn't want to preach those hard passages, those hard messages. So Paul, he had no choice but to write this letter. He had no choice. He had to write this letter of correction to bring the church back to where it needed to be. I believe that as we study through this letter, through this book, I believe that you're going to be corrected. I believe that you're going to be convicted. I believe that you're going to be encouraged. I believe that you're going to look at the churches that you've been to and maybe even this one and go, you know, there's some things in here that aren't right. I hope we address them. I hope we change them. I hope we do that. But I also think it's important that we look at our life in this perspective. You see, because it's easy to look at somebody else's ministry or somebody else's life and say, well, I see these things that are wrong. Well, be careful because a letter was written to the church in Corinth but it's also going to be written to you and to your life. And there's much that you can glean and much that you can learn from it. The churches will become recentered or reestablished on the things of the Lord. And we need to make sure we do the exact same thing. If there is a letter that the churches today need to hear, if there is a letter written in the scriptures that the churches need to understand, it's 1 Corinthians. It's not shouldn't be taken lightly. It should be a letter that we embrace we shouldn't be afraid of it, but we should also be willing to yield as the Apostle Paul instructs the churches, he will also be instructing us in our own lives. Paul begins in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians in verse 1 with his greeting. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sothenes, our brother. Notice that Paul places his name and his title at the very beginning of this letter. He wants everybody to know who's writing the book, and he wants them to know the authority on which he's writing the book. I'm Paul, not me, but Paul saying, I'm Paul. I'm writing this letter. And who am I? I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Since this letter is going to be correcting the church, it's going to be rebuking the church, it's important they understand the authority from which he is writing. They understand who's writing it. Because if someone writes you a letter of correction or rebuke, doesn't it make a difference who writes the letter? I mean, there's some people that would come to you and want to correct you and go, I'm not interested in what you have to say. You need to worry about yourself. But the Apostle Paul says, no, no, I want you guys to understand. I'm Paul. I'm an apostle by Jesus Christ. And you need to be interested in what I'm about to tell you. The, the next, the, the, these coming chapters are going to be very, very important for you to listen to and for you to yield to. But notice he says, Paul's called to be an apostle. It, notice his calling, it came by the will of God. 
Paul says, my calling came by the will of God. He didn't place himself in that position. He didn't think, well, it'd be really cool to be an apostle like Peter, so I'm going to call myself an apostle. He says, no, my, my calling came by the will of God. God placed me in that position. Peter didn't get around to get the other apostle. Hey, guys, you know, Judas is gone. We voted on Matthias, but that didn't work out so good. We don't know anything about him. One more. Let, let's pick Paul. It didn't work that way. It, the Lord put Paul as an apostle. The Lord is the one that called Paul to be an apostle. And that's what Paul wants us to know. He wasn't voted on. He wasn't nominated. It wasn't, like, it wasn't something that, that anybody, maybe they didn't even like it. Who knows? They were, they were concerned about Paul, remember? Because he did, his track record wasn't very good. He had a track record of persecuting Christians. Now here he is declaring himself as an apostle. The Lord has ordained me as an apostle, Paul's saying. And you know, in ministry, it's not any different today. Men don't get into ministry or shouldn't get into ministry today because they want to, because, simply because they want to, or because they think it'll be cool to have a church, or it might be fun to preach, or it might be some recognition or some authority, or it might, it might be something like that. Pastors shouldn't be hirelings looking for a paycheck. Pastors need to be called into ministry first by the Lord. Their pastors aren't made in seminary. Pastors are called by the Lord. The Lord has to put a calling on somebody's life. To be in ministry, you must be called by the Lord. You see, it's God who ordains men in ministry. He did it then with the Apostle Paul, and he still does it today. It doesn't mean you don't get an education. It doesn't mean that you don't, you don't, you don't fulfill that. But it's God who does the ordination. It's man's responsibility to recognize and acknowledge those men that God has ordained. You see, God does the ordination. When it comes time at our church to make an associate pastor, when, the, when that day comes where we need to make an elder or an associate pastor because I need help or, or whatever that reason is, it's an easy process. It's not going to be really difficult to find out. It, it, it shouldn't surprise you is what I'm saying. If someday when that happens, the person that fills that role, it shouldn't, it shouldn't shock you. You shouldn't go, oh, I never saw that coming. It should be quite obvious. They'll already be doing the work of a pastor or an elder long before they receive the title. Long before they get a name tag that says elder or pastor, which we don't have anyways, but long before they have a title before their name, they're already going to be doing the work of a pastor. God will have already ordained them. They will already be serving, and it's our job. Oh, yeah, we see that. That's how it happened with me. When I, I, used to, when I was in Florida, I, I, was, I would have breakfast on Wednesday mornings with a, with a group of guys that were in the church. And, you know, we, we did that for a number of years. And I can remember thinking when, it was my, when I felt like the Lord was calling me to be a pastor. I was really nervous about that. I'm like, well, how do, you, how do you tell somebody you're called to be a pastor? And as I sat with these guys at breakfast one morning, I said, hey, guys, you know, I, I need your prayer. I need you to pray for me for something. They said, what? I said, I really think the Lord's calling me to be a pastor. They started laughing at me. I said, what are you laughing at? It's not funny. And I said, this is serious. They go, yeah, we already know that. I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me? And they said, well, the Lord has to tell you. He's, he's the one that's got to call you. I said, well, what do you mean you already knew? He goes, well, you're already doing it. You're already, you're already teaching the men's study. You're already serving in the church. You're already doing all of those things that a pastor does. I said, so I'm like the last one to know. And they're like, yeah, I guess so. I said, okay, now what do I do? You know? And so what I'm saying is, is when, it, when that time comes, you should be able to look out and see the men that God has ordained for ministry. They should already be living that. They're not going to become a pastor after they get a title. They're going to be doing those things before they get a title. They're going to be living that way at home. They're going to be teaching their families. They're going to be in the prayer meeting because they understand the importance of prayer. They'll be caring for and ministering to the people of the body of Christ. They'll be teaching the Bible whenever and wherever they can. They'll have been tested. They'll have been tried. They'll have stood faithful in all of those things. You'll, they've been through the difficult times. All we have to do is go, yeah, we see that. We see what God's doing in somebody's life. It's not that hard to pick out. The Lord is the one who calls a man into ministry. 
And the Lord is the one who equips those that he calls. Pastor Chuck used to always say, the Lord doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. You see, it's when you're called into ministry that then you begin to go getting trained and you learn the things you need to learn for ministry. Some guys, they go to seminary. Some guys go to Bible college. Some guys are self-taught in all that they learn. They, it's, it's all, they, some guys study underneath another pastor for several years. Depending on, now there's not one set track on how it works. The Lord does the calling. We just recognize what the Lord's doing. I have a piece of paper in my office. It says I'm an ordained pastor from Calvary Chapel. And it's sitting underneath my, it's not even on the wall. It's underneath my bookshelf, underneath a bunch of legal pads. And from time to time, someone will come in and they'll say, well, are you ordained? And I say, yeah, I have a certificate here and I'll show it to them. Oh, okay. I could have got that off Google. I mean, I could have, anybody can go get something like that. I mean, it's not hard. You, you, you make all kinds of things up like that. Now, I didn't. I really did get a study underneath of another pastor and got ordained. But my, my point is, you should be able to recognize me as being ordained by God to be a pastor. If you don't think I'm ordained to be a pastor, then you need to find another church because you're sitting in the wrong place. You're wasting your time. If you don't think I'm doing what God's called me to do, please go find another church. And you, you're gonna, you're, you really will be wasting your time. But I'm convinced the Lord called me and moved my family from South Florida to Cumberland to plant Calvary Chapel Cumberland. And obviously we have a radio station now going and we're watching the fruit of what God's doing. And it's been an amazing thing to watch. And you guys are all part of that. Now, Paul also mentions a guy in there by the name of Sothenes. I don't know why they couldn't have regular names like we have. If I was going to write, I'd have like Bill and John. It'd be so much easier. Sothenes. But notice he says, our brother. Acts 18 also tells us that Sothenes was also a ruler of the synagogue there in Corinth. It tells us he was beaten in front of the governor, and Paul calls him a brother. Paul says he's one of our brothers. You know, we don't really identify one another in our culture as being a brother or a sister. You understand when they did it, it was so they knew who they could trust. So they knew who, they, they, persecution was coming. They had to make sure they could trust somebody. So they, Paul would write back and say, Sothenes, if you run into him, he's a good brother. He's with us. He's one of us. You can trust him. That's, that's, that's essentially what he's doing here. And before Paul goes into the rebuke of this church, and we're not going to get there today because it's many chapters long, before he goes into the rebuke, he's going to do two things that are very important. He's going to remind them, first of all, of who they are in Christ Jesus. First, he's going to remind them of who they are in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. As Paul's reminding them of who they are, they, he, he uses four statements to describe them. These four statements can also apply to every believer. They can apply to you and me if we're believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, they do. The first thing he says is they are a part of God's church. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, they're a part of God's church. It's always good to remember that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of God's church. You are part of the body of Christ. You are not on this journey alone. There's other people who are with you to help you, to support you, to pray for you, to be there for you, to help meet needs if necessary. There's other people with you on this journey. Sometimes people will venture off on their own. And it's usually a dangerous place to go. I've watched it many, many times as people slip away from church. You don't see them that much. Before you know it, they're gone farther and farther away. Oftentimes I go to them and I'll say, hey, where have you been? Maybe it's time to come back. As a pastor, 
it's good for me to remember this too. Because as a believer, I'm part of the church. But as a pastor, I need to remember that the church belongs to God. Whose church is it? It's his church. It's not my church. Well, Calvary Chapel Cumberland might be the place that God called me to minister. But you belong to him. This building belongs to him. This church belongs to him. The radio station, it's not mine. I don't own it. Sure, we have a corporation that owns the, the legal things of it. But who does it really belong to? It belongs to the Lord. Everything we, The chairs belong to the Lord. Next time you save a seat, think about that. That's my seat. Really? It's Lord's seat. He, he has it. It's, everything that we have as a, as a church belongs to him. It's his church. So when the problems arise, I don't have to worry about them as much. It's not my problem. It's Lord, God, it's your problem. Hey, God, have you realized the service is full? What are we going to do? Have two. Okay. So we have two. Look, all the empty seats we got. Not just thinking, we'll watch as God fills these up too. It'll be cool to watch. You know, I was surprised we had so many people at the early service. Those guys get up early. They're dedicated. Now, you know the problem with coming to the late service, don't you? I don't have an ending time. I can keep going. You see, I have to finish this early service on time because we've got to get parking and stuff. But now I can just keep right on going. Hope you guys brought your lunch. No. Number one, they're part of God's church. Number two, they're sanctified. They're sanctified. If you have a reference Bible, it'll tell you right there with a the number next to the word sanctified. It means this. The word sanctified means set apart. Set apart. When you believe on Jesus Christ, you are set apart for his purposes. As a believer, you can say this morning, I am sanctified. I am set apart. I have been set apart from the world by the Lord for his purposes. Not my purposes, his purposes. Oh, you hear the story. Oh, God's got a plan for your life. You've been set apart for that plan. You have a choice. Do I want to walk in that plan or not? Certainly that's your, that's your choice. But he, the moment you get saved, God says, I'm taking you and I'm setting you apart from everything else. I have a plan. I have a purpose for you. You're part of my church now. You're part of my body. And I'm going to set you apart. Number three, he says, they're called saints. Please notice the words there, to be, are in italics. If you notice that in your Bible, whenever you see words in italics in the Bible, do you know what that means? It means they weren't part of the original language. There's no Greek words matching the words to be. So if you take those words to be out, it says they are called saints. When you believe on Jesus Christ, you're set apart for his purposes. When you believe on Jesus Christ, you become literally a saint. That's what it says. It says you're called saints. You're called saints. It means there's people who belong to God. God's people. That's, that's, what it, that's what being a saint really means. I know that when I tell you that you're called a saint, some of you might go, well, that's kind of surprising. And you might look at your neighbor and say, well, I know they're not saints. Or whatever it is. And there have been some churches that have taken the word saint and they've elevated it and made it, they've applied it to people whom the Lord has used mightily. And they've given them the title, the word saint. You know, they've been confirmed so many miracles in them and whatever it is, they, 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 that's who a saint is. We're going to worship them, we're going to pray them. That's not the way the Bible uses the word saint. It's not the way it uses it at all. In the scripture, a saint is not somebody we worship, it's just another name for believer. It's a synonym for believer. In fact, if you study Paul's letters... Over 40 times, 40 times he'll use the word saint to describe the believers in the place where he's at. You see, our culture on earth has elevated saint, but saint, it just simply means I'm a believer. So you can believe here this morning and go, I'm a saint. Don't put it on your business card at work. They'll think you're crazy. Don't, don't do that. Don't walk around and go, don't, don't, hi, Saint Rob, and I'll, I'll introduce you. It's, no, don't, 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 don't do that. But think about it. That's how the Lord sees you. That's my people. He's my saint. She's my saint. She's, she's the one that's working for me. I've got work for her. I've set her apart. I've set him apart. 
They believe on Jesus Christ. They're mine. They're, they're part of my church. I've set them apart. They're my saint. How cool is that? And the fourth thing he says there, he says, they call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. They call on the name of, that's what we do today. We're, we do the same thing they did. Just like believers today, they call on the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is how you get those things. If you call on the name of Jesus Christ, if you call on the Lord and you believe, then you become set apart or sanctified. Then you become a saint. Then you become part of the church or part of, the, part of his church or part of the body. Now in verse 3, Paul moves on to his common greeting that he uses in most of his letters. Uh, with the exception of the letters he writes to the pastors, uh, in these letters he, he mentions grace and mercy, when he, or grace and peace. When he writes to the pastors, he mentions grace uh, grace, peace, and mercy. So verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word grace is simply the Hebrew word shalom. When you go to Israel today, they still shalom is what you'll say. It's the common greeting in Israel. Shalom, if you were to meet a Jewish person, shalom is, is perfect, the way you would greet them. Uh, peace was the common Greek greeting. That, so he, Paul is speaking for, to the Greeks and to the, Jew, to, to the Greeks and the Jews there. Shalom, grace, and peace. But notice the order they come in. It's always important to notice things like that. What's the order? Well, grace always comes before peace in Paul's greeting. Why would he do that? Because you cannot experience peace with God until you experience and understand the grace of God. You've got to understand it in that order. One commentator explained it this way. He said, grace is always first. Peace always second. This is due to the fact that grace is the source of of peace without grace there is and can be no peace but when grace is ours peace must follow grace and peace it comes in that order when you understand the grace of God then you will experience the peace of God and the peace with God after reminding them of who they were in the Lord so eloquently and beautifully there as we come into verse 4 Paul is going to then declare his thankfulness for these people his thankfulness Remember, this is a letter of rebuke. We haven't got there yet, but you're going to see that Paul's got a lot of negative things to say to the church and what's going on there. But before he does that, he's reminded them of who they are in the Lord, and now he's going to thank, he's going to show them or tell them how thankful he is for them. This gives us a good indication of Paul's heart. As we read the rest of this letter, we're going to be surprised that Paul's thankful for this group of people. You would think that as a pastor, Paul would be like, I wish you guys would all just leave and go find another church so I can deal with good people and right people. But Paul doesn't see it that way. Paul says he's thankful for these people. Hey, I'm thankful. For, I understand there's problems. I understand there's, you're off a little bit. You've gotten sidetracked, but, but I want to help you. That's the heart of a pastor. It's been said that ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. If that's a pastor's heart, he shouldn't be a pastor. If it weren't for the people, there would be no ministry. Who would you be ministering to? Yourself? That's ridiculous. You see, Paul's going to th be thankful for these people. But it might be a good time to remind you, this is a good pattern to follow if you find yourself in a position where you have to rebuke somebody. If you want to address somebody in your life, family or friends, that's kind of gotten off track, and you want to try to bring them back, just looking at Paul's pattern here in these first few verses, the first thing he does is he tells them who they are in Christ. He reminds them that they're part of the body of Christ. He reminds them that they're sanctified. He reminds them of these things. And then he goes in, and we're going to see it in verse 4, he tells them how thankful he is for them. 
You see, oftentimes when we find ourselves in a position to rebuke somebody, we simply want to step on them. We want to tell them what they're doing wrong. We forget the encouragement. We forget of reminding them who they are in Christ. And if the truth be told, we're really not thankful for them. Our heart might just be to put them down so we can elevate ourselves. Because sometimes if we put somebody else down and we talk about what a mess their life is, it might make us feel better in some weird way about our life. I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I don't have those problems. I'm glad I don't struggle in that way. Oh, did you hear what they did? Oh, they're backslidden. Pray for them. You know, we can run across those things. And Paul, that's not Paul's heart here. Paul's heart is a heart of love. He's correcting these people, but he cares for them deeply. If he didn't, he wouldn't be writing this letter. He just got, ah, who cares? Start, let's start a new church in Corinth. I'll go back there after I leave Ephesus. We'll start another one. Well, don't worry about those people. That's not what he does. Look at verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you. For the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. I thank my God always. I don't care about your problems. I don't care about your issues. I, don't, I know you're living in sin. I know there's all kinds of problems here. And I am thankful for you and your belief in Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for what I have. Paul's thankful for the people in Corinth that they know Jesus Christ. He's going to go on and list some other things. Look at verse 5. That you were enriched in everything by him. In all utterance, all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. The Corinthians were a rich church. Not only materially, but also in their speech and their knowledge of spiritual things, of Jesus. They had a lot going on. Look at verse 7. So that you come short in no gift. Paul says, you guys aren't lacking any gift. You've got all the gifts. Every one, every gift that you can imagine is there being manifested in the church of Corinth. They've got them all. Even though these gifts are causing some of the problems in the church. And he'll address those in later chapters. Paul says, I'm still thankful you've got them. It's better you've got them and you're messing them up than not having them at all. It's better that you've got them, and I'm going to try to bring you back to where, they, where you need to be, but I'm glad that you've got them. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the Corinthian Christians were indeed gifted, yet carnal. They were gifted, yet carnal. Should it not show us that gifts are nothing unless they're laid on the altar of God? That it is nothing to have the gift of oratory. That it is nothing to have the power of eloquence. That it is nothing to have learning. That it is nothing to have influence. Unless they all be dedicated to God. And consecrated to his service. If he's given you a gift, whatever it is, unless you've given it back to him and consecrated it for his service, it's a waste of a gift. Yes, you might make money. Yes, you might buy a big house. Yes, you might establish even a ministry. But unless you realize it comes from the Lord and you set it aside for him, it it means nothing. It's useless. It's being wasted. It's not not the reason the Lord gave it to you. He also says at the end of verse 7, they're eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul looked out at the Corinthian church and he's looking back at them, he says these people proclaim Jesus. Yes, their life's a mess, but they're still proclaiming Christ. They know about Jesus. They have the supernatural gifts. They're excited about Christ's return. They're talking about the return of Jesus Christ. They just need to be set straight a little bit. They've just gotten off track a little bit. They've just gone sideways in their faith. Notice this. 
For whatever problems they have, and if you're familiar with the book of Corinthians, we're going to see some big problems in the church. For whatever problems they have, Paul's got a whole lot of good things to say to them. We might look at the church of Corinth and go, well, boy, I'm, not, I'm glad we're not like that. But I pray we look at the church of Corinth and go, I wish we were like the good things that Paul has to say. Not the bad. We don't want the bad. But the good things that he has to say, you've got all the gifts going on. You're, you're blessed. You're rich. You're, you, you're, look, you're, you're focusing on Christ. You're doing these things. That should be the heart of the church. Sometimes churches pride themselves on not being like the Corinthian church. But do they have the positive things that the Corinthian church had? Are they doing nothing with what God has given them? Look at verse 8 and 9. Who will also confirm you to the end? That you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Corinthian church, as we will see, has its strong points. And it also has its weak points. But Paul understands the church belongs to the Lord. It's God's church, and the Lord is able to confirm them in the end. How can Paul be confident of this when they had so many problems? How could Paul say this so boldly that, it's, that the Lord's going to confirm them in the end? So before he even addresses their problems, he says the Lord's going to take care of this. Because he understood, he says it right there, God is faithful. It's not about the church's faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness. God hadn't forsaken the people of Israel, even though they had forsaken him. And God hasn't forsaken the church in Corinth. And he won't forsake them. He will confirm them in the end. God does the work. God gets the glory. I don't know if you caught it or not, but in all of these nine verses, and we'll kind of close with this thought, Paul mentions Jesus in every verse. Every verse the name of Jesus is mentioned, including in verse 10, but we're not going to get there this morning. For a total of nine times. His emphasis is clearly on Jesus. In a sense, I believe he's revealing to them the problem. He's telling the Corinthian church by doing that, listen, your focus is off. You're focusing on all the worldly things. If you would simply focus on Jesus, that's the solution for your problem. That's the solution for all the issues that are going on. Focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Get your eyes off of yourself and get them on Jesus. Quit trying to please yourself and please the Lord. Quit focusing on you and your problems and focusing and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? What are you teaching me in this circumstance? What are you showing me in this situation? As we study through the remainder of this book, we can certainly apply it to the churches in our day. We can certainly apply it around. But I believe the more important application is going to be, will you apply it to your own life? Will you take a look at the church in Corinth? Will you take a look at its problems and will you say, I might have that problem in my life? Because when it all boils down, the church is made up of people. Therefore, the problems that Paul's addressing are in the lives of the people. So while he was writing to Corinth, he's also writing to you and I. He's got something to say to us. Remember, if you're a Christian, you're part of the church. You're part of God's church. He already told you that. You're sanctified. You're a saint. And he wants to address you with this. But as he tells us, you're part of the church. You're sanctified. You're a saint. I can almost hear him say, now go live like it. Now go act like it. Don't act like the rest of the world. You're bringing the world into the church. The church should stand apart. Churches shouldn't be playing headline songs to get people in. 
They should be playing worship music. Churches shouldn't be trying to look like the rest of the world to make sinners comfortable. You should come, if you're living a life of habitual sin, you should come into church and feel uncomfortable. You should feel convicted. I don't want to live like that. It shouldn't be that. It shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to sit in church and hear the word of God taught and go, yeah, that's cool. You should, you should be convicted. And I know what I, when I started going to church, I was very convicted in my life. And there was things that changed. It didn't change overnight. It changed little by little, piece by piece. I don't think I could have handled all the change at once. But slowly the Lord said, I want you to change this. I want you to change that. I want you to stop going there. I want you to change that thought. I want you to stop looking at that. Don't, don't think that way. And it began a process that I'm still going through today. It's not over. I'd love to say, well, I'm done changing, so you guys just be like me. No, be like Christ. He's the example we follow. He's the one that we follow. He's the one. But this process of change will happen if you'll let the book of 1 Corinthians change you. It's a powerful book. It's a convicting book. It's an encouraging book in some ways. But I believe that when we're done with it, just like the book of Romans, you'll look back and go, wow, I've learned a lot, and the Lord has changed me a lot. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we thank you for your word, for the study of your word. Lord, you've given it to us as a guide to go by. And Lord, I pray that as we turn these pages in 1 Corinthians, as we study these this letter that Paul wrote to the church there, Lord, may we not just see it as a history lesson. May it not be a historical, may we not see it as a good suggestion for our life. Instead, may we come with an open heart, with the heart that says, Lord, change me, make me more like you, and use your word to do it. I pray that you'd meet us on these pages, and I pray that you'd change our life like never before. I pray that you'd convict us and rebuke us, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Make us more like you so that we can accomplish the very thing that you laid hold of us for. Lord, we believe that you laid hold of each of us with a purpose in mind. And may you accomplish that purpose in us. Lord, we look forward to your return. We can't wait to that day where we see you face to face. But we know there's much work to be done here on this earth. May we accomplish it in your power and your strength. May you equip those that you call. And we walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.